0: Christopher Cassan and this is Ireland's Edge. Earlier this month at least 86 men, women and children drowned in the waters off Calabria, trying to seek refuge in Italy. In the last decade, tens of thousands of refugees and migrants have died in the Mediterranean, creating what Pope Francis has called Europe's largest graveyard. Attempts by European governments to turn the continent into fortress Europe have created a humanitarian catastrophe for those fleeing drought, famine, war and oppression. Much of the most vital reporting of this ongoing tragedy has been done by the Irish journalist Sally Hayden, whose recent book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, won the Orwell Prize and was named Unpost Irish Book of the Year. Sally's courageous work has revealed the human stories of those who have faced violence, abuse and even death in Libyan detention camps funded by European governments, and the lengths to which international institutions have gone to cover up such crimes. I spoke to Sally in front of a live audience at Ireland's Edge in Dingle, and on today's episode, we are sharing an excerpt of that discussion. In 2018, while living in a sublet room in London, Sally received a Facebook message that began, Sister Sally, we need your help. In the conversations that followed, she discovered how people were being detained in Libya in the most horrendous conditions.
1: So I stayed in touch with this initial contact for... Days actually, but I mean, the period of time basically, from that point that I got that message, I just didn't leave my house like for I think a week. Apart from I ended up doing some media interviews that week, and um, I was talking to these people, you know, constantly. They were sending me GPS locations, selfies, contacts for their family members, anything that I would ask for to try and verify what was happening. And eventually, um, they did get moved to another location. Uh, And this was after, so I tried to get a story published because I'm freelance, it takes a while to get editors to respond. So once I was sure that this was happening, they were still like, please tell the world, tell the world. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna post this on my Twitter because you know, we had discussed, is it dangerous for me to tell people where you are? Like, Is that gonna add to your risks? But actually they were like, no, we want people to know that we're here and that we exist basically and that we're in danger. So I started posting the messages on Twitter. Um, as screenshots, and it turned into this thread that ended up getting millions of views, um, and literally went on for years. Like <laughs> this took over the—I mean, all of my life until now, since 2018. Um, and what happened? I had thought that this was an isolated incident, so I was like, if I can just help these people, like it must be that there was some mistake, you know? They must be there by accident, um, and they need help. And I thought, if I can help them that something's gonna change, but actually it turned out that the problem was much greater and what emerged the more I spoke to them was that these were all people who had attempted to reach Europe by crossing the Central Mediterranean Sea, what the UN calls the deadliest migration route in the world. And they had been intercepted by the Libyan Coast Guard, which is supported by the EU to do these interceptions to stop people from reaching Europe and the eu since 2017 has been conducting surveillance so flying helicopters planes now drones as well to spot refugee boats transmitting that information to the libyan coast guard which is kind of a loose collection of militias it's not so clear a coast guard as it sounds um, who then intercept the boats force people back and lock them up indefinitely in detention centers with no charges you know it's not like you're facing any particular legal case you're just locked up indefinitely um, and so this, you know, shocked me completely because I'm European, obviously. I was like, this is a result of European Union migration policy. And, you know, I had this dawning realization that what is happening to these people is being done in my name. Yeah,
0: and it's being um, done deliberately as well, it's done Very deliberately.
1: Um, yeah, it's not an accident that they were there that this was happening and so.
0: You kind of stumbled into like an enormous crime against humanity in some ways being perpetrated by European governments. Do you have any idea why these people contacted you in the first place?
1: Yeah, I mean, and and to, to be clear, like stumbled, in one sense it's correct, and in another sense, which I probably didn't get into enough in the book, actually I had had some awareness that this was happening because I had reported on migration before, but I had never actually had to you know, because there are so many terms that are used to describe migration policy, things like migration management or, you know, this or that. I I hadn't actually understood the human consequences of these policies, and so I had had some awareness in the back of my mind that there were policies happening in the central Mediterranean to stop migration. I just didn't know what that actually meant or what that actually looked like. So stumbled in a way is correct, but in another way, it's like actually it was more like I was woken up. You know. Um, and sorry, just just to, to add, uh, since 2017 under these policies, more than now 108,000 people have been caught, men, women, and children, and forced back to Libya while trying to reach Europe. Um, so yeah, why did they contact me? That wasn't clear to me at the start. Um, obviously, it seemed quite strange. Uh, actually, it transpired that I had done reporting in Sudan the previous year. So Sudan is neighboring Libya, and people who escape Eritrea, um, Somalia, sometimes South Sudan, will go through Sudan to get to Libya to then try and cross into Europe. So that's kind of the route. So I had been in Sudan in 2017, and I had gone initially to report on, um, to report, I think I was doing something kind of vague about, you know, migration routes or something like that. But I started meeting refugees in Khartoum. I got a grant to go there and I started meeting refugees and they were all like, please, can you investigate the UN refugee agency? Like, they were like, the UN refugee agency, the way it's operating is corrupt and we don't have a chance, you know, to have our cases properly we're not protected here, we're in danger and there's something called refugee resettlement which when you hear politicians talking about like you know queue jumpers or whatever I I think that's what they're generally kind of referring to. There's a very small opportunity for a very small group of refugees to be resettled to rich countries depending on how many spaces those rich countries offer and that's the so-called legal route. but in Sudan, what I was being told was that refugees who wanted to be considered for this were or, or to be taken to safe countries. Were being asked to pay bribes of up to around twenty thousand dollars for a family to be, be can, you know to be moved. And so I started investigating that in 2017. Uh, it took you know and literally every refugee I spoke to was like, please just report on this, investigate this, this is the big story, you know, forget whatever else you were trying to do. Took me about 10 months to get that published um, because my editors at the time, which, I mean, it was good because we stood everything up very well, but my editors were like, we need a source within the UNHCR to have somebody who says this is happening, and eventually I got that. And we published on May 15th, uh, 2018, um, saying that, you know, uh, that basically UN refugee agency staff were accused of taking bribes for resettlement. And what the refugees in Sudan were saying is, you know, this is what they call the legal route, but it's actually like, you know, corrupt and incredibly expensive. And so that's why people are taking the, you know, so-called illegal route, because it's cheaper. And so so two days after we published that, uh, UNHCR released a statement saying that they were deploying an anti-fraud team. Uh, and suspending resettlement across the country while they carried out this investigation and they did eventually find one staff member guilty of soliciting bribes and abusing power. But the refugees in Libya, when they had gone looking for a journalist, they were like, you know, who can we contact? We don't know any journalists. One of them had a brother in Sudan who said, what about Sally Hayden? Because at that stage my name had become quite known among refugee communities there. It's
0: pretty amazing that that series of events led you into this extraordinary situation in Libya. and I suppose it's quite similar to the fact that the refugee routes towards Europe had also been shifting towards Libya over the past few years, because your previous reporting had been working with many Syrian refugees who had come, I think all of us remember, in 2015 when many Syrians were fleeing the country, and they were mostly coming through Turkey and across the Aegean to Greece. Um, and by paying the Turkish government to create detention camps in Turkey, Europe had kind of closed those routes after 2015, so people started coming through Libya. Um,
1: but just to be clear, actually, there, it's different kind of groups of people, so the ones who go through Turkey tend to be coming from the Middle East or Asia, more likely, whereas the ones who were... Like Libya was always a, a transit country, at least since the fall of Gaddafi, and, um, it would be more like Africans from across, fleeing like many different situations across Africa who would go through Libya. So it tended to be, you know, a slightly different, like there, I mean. From
0: Ethiopia and Eritrea. Yeah, like they,
1: they wouldn't really have gone through Turkey. I mean, I think a few have, but it would be more rare, you know, it was kind of two different, two different routes.
0: So when you started, you know, you said that you, you initially assumed that the person who contacted you from Tripoli was perhaps an isolated case, and then you started to become woken up to the fact that there was a much more you know, widespread system where people were being detained in Libya, um, and you had contacted the international agencies there. Like, What kind of response did you get from the UN agencies in Libya when you started investigating how these people were being treated when they were detained in that country?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting to think back on because and I should say, by the way, I'm not the most eloquent speaker, so if anyone wants to read the book, it's explained much better there. But uh, yeah, it, it was strange because normally as a journalist, you just your job is reporting, you know, so I would have not really engaged in this sort of, um, in what basically transpired. What basically transpired was that there were people inside these detention centres, phones were prohibited. And there were people with phones that they had snuck in or you know, paid a guard to get in or whatever, you find ways to, to access them. And they had had no way to contact the NGOs, so there were organizations, UN agencies, their partner organizations, who were meant to have access to these different detention centers, but they would have very limited access. In terms of like, they had to call ahead when they came. You know, things would be cleaned up for them. Potentially, it would be like, you know, if someone had been tortured or someone was really sick, they might be hidden. They might not actually access the um, the cells that people were being held in. It might be that the guards would just select people to come out, and you know, they'd be the ones who got to see the NGOs. And all the time, the communication was monitored, so nobody could speak freely. And so suddenly, it became that the people inside these detention centers could send information to me and then I would pass that on to the NGOs and they were very worried because a lot of the staff in the NGOs were Libyans particularly and they felt like the Libyans could come under pressure from the militias who ran the detention centres to, you know, divulge information, or they didn't even necessarily trust the, the alliances of some of them, you know, and they were worried that the SIM cards would get shut down or the phones would get taken, and so by sending, like, it seems strange that I was involved in this, you know, I was thousands of miles away and I hadn't even been to Libya, but. Actually, it made sense because they were like, "Who can we trust that plays no role in this she's not in Libya. she has no you know alliance here, this random you know journalist in the u k so I started being sent information that I would then compile and send onto to the NGOs and I learned quite quickly which NGOs were meant to be working in which center and generally I mean it depended on the NGO, but generally they could come back and say you know that 's not accurate and then it would turn out that they're because a lot of the heads of the NGOs were based in Tunisia. They weren't actually based in Libya, so they would say, "You know, that's not true. Our local staff tell us that this is the case." And then I'd be like, "Send them evidence of whatever was happening," and then they would realize that the local staff weren't actually telling them the reality, or were maybe not doing their jobs, or you know, maybe were scared to pass something on. And I, um, yeah, then literally like pretty much every day for probably a year, I was just collecting this information, sending it on, collecting it, sending it on, and that became a way that, I mean, it was very strange, to be honest. It was like,
0: very strange. I mean, what was that personally like? Because a lot of the, I mean, as you chronicle in the book, you know, very rigorously and, you know, unflinchingly, a lot of the evidence that you were receiving was really horrific of the way that these people were being treated, of the levels of abuse and violence, the conditions that they were being kept in. and. Many of the messages you know, that you include the text of in the book are heartbreaking because of how desperate the people are and the situation and hopeless they become and many people you know, ending up committing suicide and so on. Was that... I mean, how did that feel personally? Like, obviously, this is not a story about you. This is a story about you know, over 100,000 people who are being treated like this. But what was that personally like to be receiving that uh, you know, torrent of evidence from far away, and feeling, you know, how did you, how did it make you feel, and what was it like as a process?
1: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it completely took over my life. Like, and the way that it worked, because the phones were hidden, I would generally, I might not receive anything all day unless there was an emergency. But then around 11 p.m., because people would be hiding under blankets, or you know, they'd wait till the guards went to sleep or went out or whatever that would be when my phone would start like lighting up with messages about you know this happened today, this happened today, um, and that would probably go on to like two or three a.m. and so I'd just be there messaging whoever it was. Um, you know or many people because I had sources in many different detention centres and yeah I mean I don't know, I think at the start I was so motivated by this sense that this was clear wrongdoing and if I just exposed it then something was going to happen and you know I struggled with that because I'm obviously a journalist it's not my job to advocate or to you know suggest policies or anything like this but I was like I just need to document this because it's clear that this is you know a group of people who have been silenced and that there is obvious wrongdoing happening here and um, yeah so initially I was just honestly I had a lot of energy in a way I was really finding it very difficult but also I was motivated by you know thinking that something would happen and I think I even say in the book like as time went on I became kind of aware that actually this was known at the highest levels of the EU, for example. It's known what is happening and it's not a secret in the sense that maybe some of the specifics were not known, but the more broad reality was known. And I started talking to politicians. You know, and, and the book, you were talking about NGOs, I mean, the book does look at, you know, the difference between, for example, public statements released by NGOs and the reality of what was happening and allegations that the UN was being used to whitewash the effects of EU policy and you know, also the things that EU officials would say but um, a lot of my sources were in the UN and the EU and they were contacting me and they were like, we're so uncomfortable with what is happening and we're so grateful that you're reporting this and you keep going and I was like, why is it just me that has to keep going if everybody, you know, if everybody knows this is going wrong? And I remember someone, um, I won't name the organization, but one human uh, rights organization, Uh, got in touch, I mean they were all, everybody started contacting me because they were like she's the one who has all the information, you know, so none of them wanted to be the one gathering this information but they would contact me and say can you tell us what's happening here, can you tell us what's happening here, and one human rights organisation worker said isn't it great that you have all this energy, like I don't know, (laughs) I I hope you keep it up, and I was like this is... um, You know, you're like, I was freelance, I wasn't even getting paid, and I was like, You're on a staff salary and you're being paid to investigate this thing, and you're, you know, everybody's becoming reliant on me as a freelancer, and this shows that this system is just so wrong. So, yeah. um, So, I I don't, yeah, sorry, I didn't fully answer your question, but I feel like I don't know how to answer that question. But
0: it must be a difficult thing to process because, I mean, as you say, you were hopeful that by exposing, Things, things would change and something would happen. Rapidly became obvious that that was not the case, partially because these were deliberate policies, but also, I mean, you chronicle in the book and in some of your other reporting how, you know, partially because of things that you have exposed about corruption and uh, the callousness of some international organizations, you know, you received quite a lot of hostility from um, international organizations as well. Like, did you feel that you were, you know, You were being seen as a troublemaker by people in positions of authority that you were reporting on something that they didn't necessarily want to be widely known.
1: Yeah of course I mean I was seen as a troublemaker and I was told that one UN agency in the office they used to call me the enemy when I'd get in touch they'd say oh the enemy is (laughs) contacting us again and from my perspective I actually I mean it's not really in the book but like what I was doing was passing information, and it would we'd only go public when it was clear that that those passing you know passing that information was not having an impact, and that would be in discussion with my sources obviously um, but yeah, it, that was difficult, and that was a realization and it wasn't all organizations, but I did come to the realization that I was not seen yeah you're seen as someone hostile when you are reporting on this type of thing and there were incidences honestly where I questioned myself where I really shouldn't have and to tell you like one very sad one um there was a detention center called Zintan where someone was dying an average of every two weeks from starvation and medical neglect and I started flagging this six weeks in. I think four four people had died And I started contacting UN organizations and uh, a medical charity that worked there and saying, you know, it seems like a lot of people are dying, like what's going on? And they kind of denied it basically. And I was told even in a meeting that happened quite a long while later, uh, one of the staff from one of those organizations said, this is fake news, you know, this is just being made up. And it took, I started, so these people were moved, it was like around, I think seven or 800 people were in one hall. They were moved there in September 2018 and I started flagging it in October 2018 and then I kept reporting on it kind of uh, as we went on and in May 2018, no June 2018, the beginning, there was finally a UN visit to this detention center and they confirmed what I had said at that stage, I think 22 people had died or 23 people and they said because everybody had been locked in a hall they literally hadn't been allowed to leave this hall in however many months that was they said around 80% could have tuberculosis at that stage and at that point i mean i saw the emails between uh, between these people who were discussing this because i was leaked to them but i started saying you know to myself like if i had pushed harder like what could i have done should i have pushed harder, but when you're coming up against these officials who are saying everything's fine, why are you being, you know, hysterical or why are you being difficult? Like and even when I when I reported this, I was told by one UN official, you know, you shouldn't believe the accounts that you're being given from inside detention, because people have a reason to lie. And yeah, seeing that final report where it's where I read that these twenty-two people had died, I I was like, you know, like I I should have been louder, you know, I shouldn't have got scared by that or,
0: Well, it's also shouldn't have been your responsibility. I mean, the people whose responsibility it is are the ones who are responsible. But like, does that, that must have made you, I mean, did it make you angry that they were denying things that you knew to be true at every turn and that really they, they were covering up something that was, as you say, widely known at the highest levels? Because that's what is, really quite shocking reading a lot of the details in your book is that like something that seems like a scandal is actually exactly how this is intended to work. It's intended to be harsh and dehumanising because they want to use that to dissuade people from even trying.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm, to be honest, I'm not a particularly <coughs> angry person, but some people who read the book did say that it's like a quietly angry book. Well, one said it was seething. <laughs> so, I was like, I didn't want that. You know, I'm a journalist. I just wanna document the facts. I just wanna have everything. I tried to, you know, to report in a way that, that people can't, They can be. it can be clear that everything has been verified. This is coming from a place of fact rather than it's coming from me having some sort of vendetta against whatever. Um, Person or organisation it is, and uh, hopefully I succeeded with that. But I have to say I actually had to read the book for the first time in a year, uh, like two weeks ago, because we were doing we were doing paperback updates, and um, I I wondered if I had withheld not even on my own personal opinion, but I thought that it seemed kind of sedate compared to the reality. So, um, yeah,
0: I do think that. I mean, I said in my review that your book read like a in some ways, it's like a book of evidence because you are so meticulous and rigorous in what you report and it is very factual, which I think makes it all the more powerful. I mean, that idea of it being a book of evidence has become perhaps more literal in recent uh, weeks where it's been cited uh, as evidence in an international criminal court complaint against the EU for crimes against humanity. because a lot of the evidence that you've gathered is very damning about the attitude of the EU and international organizations. I mean, what, what are your feelings about guilt and responsibility that you have exposed? Like, obviously it's not your job to um, hold people legally to account, but your reporting is already being used in those ways. Like what do you feel about the guilt and responsibility that is raised by your work?
1: You mean like my guilt or?
0: Well, I suppose in some ways our collective guilt because as you say, a lot of the things that you were exposing are being done by our governments.
1: Yeah, um, I don't know how to answer that. It's a big question but yeah, just to explain what you just said. uh, So there was a submission to the International Criminal Court I think last week and I was told, I haven't seen the whole submission but I was told by the lawyers that it had cited my book um, and it basically is calling for an investigation into named European politicians and uh, EU officials to be investigated for crimes against humanity. And what it is saying is that these interceptions are crimes against humanity because they're, uh, the aim of them is to lock people up indefinitely um, and yeah that's, they, they name different people like the for current and former prime ministers of Malta, uh, Federica Mogherini who was the former foreign affairs chief of the EU. Um, they name other people like Matteo Salvini, uh, another Italian interior minister as well and yeah I don't know if that will go anywhere but anyway it's interesting from my perspective I'm just surprised that there haven't been more calls for accountability and from what I hear from uh, European politicians who will say you know what's happening is wrong is that without the European public generally caring about this there's not much they can do because they're just gonna get voted out in the next election if the, and what they will say, I mean, some of them quite explicitly is like, well, Europeans don't care about Africans, basically, so from our perspective, like, this is, you know, this is not an issue that they're going to raise complaints about, and um, yeah, that's very, very difficult to have to understand, particularly when, you know, it seems to be very racial-based, because, I mean, I ask in the book, you know, if if uh, it was white children drowning in the Mediterranean Sea, wouldn't we have a reaction? But because, you know, and I even quote Marona Stefanos, an Eritrean um, journalist who says, you know, we're black people, that's why nobody's caring about this. And the figures are staggering, like 20, more than 25,000 people have died in the Mediterranean since 2014. Uh, Like I said, more than 108,000 forced back to Libya since 2017 as a direct result of EU policy, and many of them locked up. Nobody is measuring how many people are dying in detention centers, and that's one question that I asked many different interviewees. Um, And from what I know, the numbers are very high, but I, I don't even know that. I've documented different cases in the book, but that's probably only a small proportion. And in terms of, yeah, the other thing I guess I should say in terms of guilt and accountability, I mean, I always get asked, what should everyone do? It's not my job necessarily to answer that. Uh, and I think from my perspective, I've also had to disassociate a certain amount because you can, you can get very upset or angry and it's hard to kind of continue and you can also lose all your motivation and that's something that did happen to me, particularly when I faced, um, uh, it's in the book, but like I faced death threats, I faced, uh, you know, quite serious security issues in terms of warnings about my safety and also I was under a criminal investigation for a year as well and all of those things have kind of a freezing effect on you. You become frightened to continue and you also, the more somebody asks you, know do we have any reason to be optimistic like it seems like the world is going to shit the more you start to believe that too and you lose a bit of motivation every time to to keep doing your work so I've tried to just focus on I'm just gonna do the book I'm just gonna do my work I'll talk about it to publicize it but I can't you know keep asking myself is this having an impact but but I mean at the same stage impacts can be small and big can't they and even the fact that anyone is here listening to me talk about this, from my perspective, that's an impact because, and that's a change because I felt like I was shouting into a black hole for a very long time.
0: Yeah, well, and your book obviously, as we said, has received a great deal of attention and has been widely lauded and so on. But since it's been published, I mean, a lot of the things that you reported on are still going on, aren't they? I mean, it's not necessarily something that is purely in the past. Like what has been, you know, because you are still reporting from Africa, and a lot of detail continues to come out of North Africa about the treatment of detainees and refugees. You know, what would you say has happened since your book has been published? Would you say the situation has changed or would you say that it's basically continued along the same lines as what you were reporting?
1: I would say the situation, in terms of the experiences of people who are trying to reach safety, the situation has either continued or got worse, but In terms of public awareness about this, well maybe it's just because this one I follow, but uh, I think it's slightly, maybe slightly improving. There have been various, and in terms of we're talking about accountability, evidence, all of that. So an independent UN fact-finding mission last year in October came out and said that there's evidence that crimes against humanity and war crimes are taking place against refugees and migrants in Libya. Then in April this year, Uh, The prosecutor for the International Criminal Court also said there's evidence of crimes against humanity taking place uh, against refugees and migrants in Libya. Um, In April as well, Fabrice, uh, I always say his name wrong, Fabrice Legeri the head of Frontex, the EU border agency, resigned and that was over allegations that the agency is involved in human rights abuses against refugees and migrants on Europe's borders. It was more related to Eastern Mediterranean, but Libya is also associated with the central med. And um, at the same stage he resigned, but there didn't seem to be kind of a public awareness of that and the actual implications of that and what that means. Um, and then yeah there's been like the ICC submission there's been various other things that make me think that more people know about this but um, yeah it's it's hard to measure I don't know yeah the situation gets worse and the other concern is that the EU has shown that it's very good at finding loopholes so like if one thing becomes not allowed they could figure out another way to do that and just to be clear what's happening is a circumnavigation of international law because European vessels cannot return anyone to Libya because their lives will be in danger there so what the EU has found is a way around that they conduct all the surveillance they give the information to the Libyans who they're funding and then the Libyans find about, like, get the boat of refugees and force them back, and that's a circumnavigation, very deliberate of international law. And so the concern is, if, for example, that becomes not allowed, they'll be, a fig- they'll figure out another way to do this.
0: Yeah, and I mean, which is quite horrifying. that again, we're, you know, the deliberate policy is to make it as bad as possible. Really, it doesn't. the the the, the mechanism is only to serve the policy, the policy goal as set by European governments, like including our own, because we are part of the EU and we are partially responsible for this, is to treat these people in this way to dissuade them from, from trying to seek safety. Um, Sally, just to finish, I'd like to ask you about your work since the book, like your your reporting. Um, what's life like as a freelance journalist uh, and as the Irish Times Africa correspondent, you know, reporting in Africa? It's obviously very different being on the ground in Africa, so it was your very strange experience of receiving all these messages in your room in London. Um, you know, is it work that you enjoy? Is it work that is very emotionally difficult? And how does it relate to, you know, your previous work?
1: Yeah, um, so I've been freelance since 2016, but I'm actually on contract with the Irish Times now, So, uh, mm-hmm. so I'm still kind of freelance, but I also have like a kind of more steady arrangement, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been in place since November last year. And so, yeah, for them I do Africa coverage. Um, and this year I've traveled to like Somalia, Sierra Leone, Ghana, uh, Kenya twice. Um, I think somewhere else that I can't remember. Sorry, too much <laughs> traveling. Yeah, so uh, I don't. I don't know how to. I mean, I think it's important. I, 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 another thing. Sorry, there's too many things I could talk about, so I won't bore you. But um, but when I went on contract with the Irish Times, I was the only contracted journalist working for an Irish media outlet who was covering Africa, and I think a lot of the, you know, a, a lot of the of I'm not going to say problem but like we do have a crisis in terms of Africa coverage like it's a fascinating continent it has like what 1.4 billion people the population is expected to double by 2050 and yes you know Ireland Irish people like a lot of their understanding of it comes from true NGO you know comms and I guess that's actually another I didn't even make these things before but in terms of the book I mean I do hope it's not to attack NGOs but just one of the questions is where are we getting our information from and you know, what, why might that information be like formed in a particular way? And, um, I think, you know, we need more journalists covering Africa, a a massive range of stories, (coughs) you know, not just happy or sad. We need everything um, to have this understanding because otherwise we end up with this kind of divide between rich and poor, which is being cemented by, you know, things like migration policy or rich and poor, I mean the rich world, the, p- the poorer world, like, and we're building up borders and we're, you know, shutting down means of communication in a certain way. And in another way, everybody has more access to everywhere else than ever before because of the internet. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that I phrased that very well. No, you but did because
0: it's very valuable work. And as you say, it's very revealing that we have so little Africa coverage in Ireland. And it's very important that we, understand Africa better not in a stereotyped way because it is you know horrendous that we are t- at times very indifferent to the suffering of people who have tried to seek our help
1: and, and uh, um, suffering and humanity I should yeah. say because it's not just about suffering it's also about you know just seeing each other as people right absolutely
0: just the basic dignity and respect that people deserve um, Sally thank you so much for joining us thank you as well for your you <laughs> <laughs> so much to Sally Hayden for joining me in Dingle. On our next episode, we will be joined by the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform and the President of the Eurogroup, Pascal dunne To make sure you don't miss that or any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Southwind Blows production and I'm Christopher Kazan. Thank you for joining us. I look forward to your company next time on Ireland's Edge.